The greatest danger um, for a pastor uh, is for him to stop being enamored uh, with God. Um, his greatest fear, his greatest danger, the, the thing that would spell disaster um, for any pastor uh, is for him to stop treasuring and valuing Christ above everything else. Um, it, it will lead to his, his destruction. It will lead to the destruction of his church, of his ministry, of his home, and of his life. Uh, and so the greatest danger for the pastor is when his heart ceases to beat for the things of God. When the pastor's heart um, stops longing for communion with God, when the pastor's heart stops longing for communication with God, when the pastor's heart stops wanting to get into the word just to experience Christ, just to know Christ more, that is the greatest danger for any pastor at all. A, a pastor needs to Feel. He needs to feel it. He needs to feel the surpassing worth and value of Jesus himself. It, it must be down in his soul. His, his life must speak it out. I want Jesus and Jesus alone above everything else. Um, and if he doesn't, that is his greatest downfall. Um, it spells destruction for his ministry. If a pastor loses his enjoyment in God, it will most certainly affect his preaching. So, so why is the greatest danger for a pastor to, to, to stop being enamored with God? Because it's going to come out in his preaching. Um, it, it, a preacher can only fake it for a while. Now, some can fake it longer than others, but a, a, a preacher can only fake... Um, real genuine love for God for a while until it begins to come out in his preaching. So that, that thing that makes a good preacher, okay, so, so you'll listen to some guys and you'll go, huh. You'll listen to other guys and you're like, that, that was it. I, I don't know what, what that thing was. My argument is that thing is authenticity, is an authentic love for God um, that, that drives him, that compels him. Um, so, so when a pastor isn't enthralled with God, um, he, he's going to run out of gas in his ministry. Um, it, it's going to come out in his preaching. It's going to come out in his counsel. Again, how can, how can a preacher or a pastor counsel someone, you, you should value and love Jesus above all else when he himself is not doing that? So it's going to affect his preaching, it's going to affect his one-on-one -on -one counseling, it's going to affect the, the pastor's um, discipling when he's meeting and training other leaders. It, it, it's going to spell disaster for the, the overall church as, as the, the pastor's heart should be. I want my, my people to, to love God above all else. I'm, I'm modeling for them what a life lived out loving God above all else looks like. So, so what does this mean for the overall direction and mission for our church? Again, if his heart isn't shouting from the rooftops, Jesus is the greatest treasure, then it affects the overall forward progression of the church. So it affects his preaching, it affects his counseling, it, it, it affects the, the overall um, 
mission and trajectory of the church. Um, so I would, I would begin um, t- today just by asking you to pray for me, that, that, that my heart is always, always, always saying, Jesus is the greatest treasure. Now, some might argue and say, wait a second, Pastor Kirk, I know a greater danger for pastors, Okay, so, so you're saying it's, it, the greatest danger for the pastor is for his heart not to be enamored with Jesus above all else? What about sex and money? You see, those two things are actually the greatest danger for the pastor, for any pastor anywhere, because, I mean, let's just be honest, how many pastors disqualify themselves because of those two things? How many pastors ruin their lives and throw away their churches and throw away all their ministry because of sex and money? Here would be my argument back to you. The reason that pastor threw his life away for sex and money is because he stopped valuing Christ above all else. You see, if he valued Christ above all else, he he wouldn't have valued sex and money more. That's what's happened with those guys. When you see pastors fall in that way, it's because they begun to value or what they really treasured and what their heart was really enamored with was sex and money instead of Christ. So, the greatest danger for a pastor is to stop being enamored with God and to not value Christ above all else. And in the same way, it's your greatest danger too. It's not just the greatest danger for the pastor, it's your greatest danger See, the greatest danger for you is not forgetting to lock the doors at night. The greatest danger for you is not forgetting to pay your taxes. The greatest danger for you is not being arrested. Or what, That's not the greatest danger for you. The greatest danger for you is for you to not value and treasure Christ above all else. Again, why do men cheat on their wives? Why do men look at pornography? Why do men neglect their families and devote their whole life to their jobs? Because they value sex, because they value position, because they value money, because they value power over valuing Christ. Why do women dress immodestly? Why do women gossip? Why do... Because they value being accepted by a man over valuing Christ. Because they value being accepted by other women and, 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 and seeing um, that, that, that embrace of another, you know, that, that pat on the back from the ladies around them. They see that more important than Christ, than valuing him, than seeing the surpassing worth of Jesus. That's, that's why we err into sin. And so that's why the greatest danger not only for every pastor everywhere is to not be enamored with Christ, to not see Christ as the greatest value. The greatest danger for you in your life is to not value Christ above all else. And so today, in our text, we're going to see a man um, who values Christ uh, above all else. He, He says these words, I count Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of Christ. The the life of the Apostle Paul sings, Jesus is my all, Jesus is my all. So if you're a big idea person, here is the big idea for my sermon. It is an incredibly long run on sentence, but I'm sure you're used to that from me by now. Here's the big idea for the sermon today. You need to be repeatedly told 
We are justified by faith alone, not by anything that we do. And it is this justification that allows us to have an intimate relationship with God, which is of surpassing worth. Don't let anybody tell you any different. Okay. That, that's, that's the sermon. That, that's the whole thing. Okay, I'll read it again. You need to be repeatedly told, we are justified by faith alone, not by anything that we do, and it is this justification that allows us to have an intimate relationship with God, which is of surpassing worth. Don't let anyone tell you any different. Okay, um, so that's the big idea for today. Um, th there are four subpoints today underneath that that main idea that you can jot down um, as we roll through the text. Let's take a look at Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three, verse one. Finally, let's stop right there. Okay, now, he's about to go for two more chapters and he uses the word finally. Um, that, that reminds me of the joke where, the, uh, where the, the, the dad and his son are sitting in the congregation and, and the preacher says, finally, the little boy looks to his dad and, and he says, dad, what does the preacher mean when he says finally? And the dad looks to the son and says, absolutely nothing. <laughs> so when I say in closing and I go for 20 more minutes, it's apostolic. That's all I'm saying. The, the apostle Paul does it, I get to do it. The, this word finally can also mean and so or moving on or next, Okay. So he says, finally, what? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write these same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Okay, what same things? Rejoice in the Lord to write these same things. I'm, I'm, I'm repeating what I'm saying. I'm going to say what I've said again to write these same things to you. It's no trouble for me. It's no trouble for me. And, watch this, and it's, it's safe for you. So, so we have to ask from the text, what are the same things that he's writing? What are the same things that he's talking about? Well, what he's going to do is he's about to launch into this massive text about justification by faith alone. Meaning being made right with God solely, only, simply through faith. Period. So he is talking about faith in the gospel. So here's what he's about to do. He's about to preach the gospel to saved people. Now wait a sec, wait a sec. Now the gospel is for only lost people, right? It's the pagans and the people who are far away from God. Those are the people who need to hear the gospel, right? The, the apostle Paul here is saying, I'm gonna say the same thing to you again and, and it's no trouble for me and it's actually safe for you. You see, here, here is my definition of a good preacher. A good preacher preaches one sermon. Now, that sounds strange because you, you hear that and you go, well, that'd be kind of boring. If I have to go every Sunday and hear the same thing, right? I mean, I, I would rather him have a hundred different sermons. And, and I would say, no. You see, a great preacher has one sermon. He just says it in a hundred different ways. So, so a great preacher preaches the gospel. That's his only message. His only message is we are saved by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, through the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. 
that that is the message of the gospel, that we're saved by Jesus, his work, and, and belief in that work is the only thing that saves us, and then we just come up with a whole bunch of different ways to say the same thing. Okay? That, that's my challenge every week is I sit down in front of my computer and I go, okay, I'm preaching the Bible. The Bible has one message, which is Jesus' redemption through the cross. And I have to get up here and I have to say it to you without saying the exact same thing. Okay? So, so let's say the same thing but in a different way so that you guys don't fall asleep or play Angry Birds on your phones. That, that's, that's my challenge every single week. So what the Apostle Paul here is saying, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. I'm gonna retell you the gospel. I'm going to say the same things to you. I'm going to tell you the gospel again. Why? Because it's safe for you. Why do you think that we tell you you need to be here every single week? You need to, you need to come to church every Sunday. Hell or high water. I don't care if it's raining, I don't, snowing, sleeting, I don't care. Come to church. Not only that, we want you to be in a community group. Get in a house with other people and sit around and talk. Not only that, we, we have these things called DNA groups, which is groups of people. It's, it's an even smaller group than the small group, and it's just you and like two other people of the same gender to where you guys get together and, and talk more. Why do we do that? Because we want to tell you the gospel. We want to tell you the gospel. We want to tell you the gospel because the Christian soul finds its safety in the repetition of the gospel. Amen? The, the Christian soul finds its safety, us constantly being reminded. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many counseling situations that I've been in with men and women, married couples, single people, teenagers, adults. I can't tell you how many counseling situations I've been in and I tell them something and they go, I know, I know, I, ju I just wasn't thinking, I just forgot, I just forgot. Like, but, but don't you know that, that Jesus came to die for that sin and you don't have to live in it anymore? And they go, I know, I know, I just forgot. You see, the safety and security of the Christian soul is found in the repetition of the gospel. When we're reminded of the gospel, that is salvation through Jesus, when we're reminded of the gospel, we see the surpassing worth of Jesus, which causes us to value him above all else. Our, our heart is, <laughs> the, the reformers say, our heart is an idol factory, meaning our heart is continuously coming up with other things that, that we think are more valuable than God or, or, or cooler or better or uh, if I could get, just get this job or if I could just get married, if we could just have a kid or if we could just have two kids or three kids or if we could get the bigger house or if, if this thing would finally happen, then I would really be happy. And what we constantly need to be told, myself included, what we constantly need to hear is salvation comes through Christ alone and because of his great work, that's what makes him of such great value and so don't place your hope in anything else place your hope in him we need to hear that again and again and again so that's why Paul says I'm writing the same things to you I'm gonna tell you the gospel again it's, it's no trouble for me <laughs> and and it's safe for you our Christian souls need to rest in the safety of the repetition of the gospel so number one Never believe that you have heard the gospel enough. You haven't. And if you think you have, you're already in danger. Never believe you've heard the gospel enough. 
Again, my challenge every week is I've got to say the same thing. I've got to tell them the gospel. And, and, and I'm doing everything I can in my power to say it and new and, and exciting and, and, and coming up with cool language to say the same thing. My prayer for you is that your soul would never grow weary of hearing it. That when we talk about Jesus' work on the cross and what it accomplished and what it means for you in your life, that no matter how we say it, you, you would be excited to hear it and you would know, I need to hear this. I need to hear this. I need to hear the gospel again. Because somewhere along the way this week, I've dropped pieces of it. And I need to come back. I need to pick it back up. I need to go back out carrying it again. So, here's what he's going to do. Okay, so, so he's going to remind them of the gospel, justification by faith alone. He's going to do that by attacking false doctrine. Okay, so, so he's going to attack somebody here. Okay, so... This next section, I want you to hear the passion from the Apostle Paul. Now, you remember chapter one? We know that he's writing this letter from jail. And he said this in chapter one. They're seeking, he's talking about these other people, they're seeking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Meaning, these guys are trying to kick me while I'm down. These guys are out to get me. But you remember what he says? Whether in pretense or in truth, I'm, I'm fine. As, as long as Christ is preached, I don't care. They, they can personally attack me. Doesn't, I don't care. But <laughs> here, someone is preaching something or saying something that's harmful and detrimental to the church, and Paul comes out swinging. He, he uses three alliterated words. They all start with a Greek letter, K or kappa, he, he uses three, three words in the Greek that, that begin with this as an alliteration to show a one, two, three punch in the face of these people who are preaching a false doctrine. And he is mad. So, so I want you to hear the passion from the Apostle Paul. I want you to hear his anger. I want you to hear his outrage at this group of people. Verses two through three. Look out for the dogs, Look out for those evildoers. Look out for the ones who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Okay. Um, here's, here's a little background. If you were here with us at the very beginning of our series, um, we actually jumped back to the book of Acts and said that Paul began um, th this battle with a group of people called the Judaizers. Everybody say Judaizers. Judaizers. Now, here is who they were. Um, they were Jewish Christians who sought to make the Gentiles observe Jewish religious customs. Okay, so if you were to ask a Judaizer, who do you believe Jesus is? They would say, the son of God who died on, our, on the cross in our, in, in our place for our sins. Okay, well, we believe that. Cool. And then they would say, and in order to be saved, you must believe in him and be circumcised and follow the dietary laws laid out in the Old Testament and observe all the, the Jewish Old Testament laws. Okay, so they were a Jesus plus people. Okay, here at Gospel Community Church, we are not, okay? We are a Jesus plus nothing equals everything people. We don't add anything to Jesus. It is in him and him alone. 
But, but the Judaizers wanted to add something to the gospel. They, they would say, yes, yes, the cross, yes, Jesus, yes, his work, and you should do all the old stuff that we used to do, right? And, and all these Gentiles that are coming into our religion, they got to change. They got to change. They got to be like us, you know? They, they, they got to look like us. They got to talk like us. They got to smell like us. They got to act like us. They got to use the language that we use. If not, they are not justified. So Paul began this battle with them back in Acts chapter 15. And it seems here, apparently, these Judaizers were doing some work in and around the church at Philippi, and Paul is ticked. So he calls them dogs, he calls them evildoers, and he calls them manipulators of the flesh, which is a threefold attack against everything that they place their confidence in. Now, he begins by calling them dogs. <laughs> okay. So even in our culture, it's not the, the greatest thing to call someone, but you need to erase from your mind, when, when he says dog, uh, you need to erase from your mind uh, sweet Mr. Ringo, okay? Which, if, yes, if you've been to my house, you know my lovely dog, Mr. Ringo, okay? These people had no concept of pets, okay? They didn't have pet dogs. It's not, it's not what they had. Um, nor did they have any concept of dog food, they didn't feed them that, that way. So dogs in these days are pests who eat unclean and dirty, filthy things. So what do the Judaizers believe uh, brings them justification before God? Their correct dietary laws. And so the Apostle Paul says, no, nah, you're dogs. You, you eat filthy things just like those nasty dogs do. Not only does he insult them that way, the Apostle Paul continues to go on and insult them by calling them evildoers. Now the Judaizers would say, whoa, 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 Apostle Paul, you see, we follow all of the Old Testament rules and laws. See, we're not evildoers, we're right doers. We do the right thing. We're good people. And he would say, absolutely not. Not only are you a dog, but you're an evildoer. And then, then he follows it up with, and you are manipulators, manipulators of the flesh, which in the Greek is, is it, th that word kind of sounds like circumcision, but, but a few of the letters are different. So, so he says, you guys think that you're so holy because you're circumcised. You're, you're not holy because you're circumcised. You're actually, mutil that's all you're doing is mutilating flesh. <laughs> the, the Apostle Paul here comes out swinging and, and attacks to the very heart and core of what these guys believed made them righteous, what, what they believed made them good before God. They believed that all of that stuff they were doing made God look down on the Judaizers and go, man, those guys are awesome. I want them on my team. And the Apostle Paul says, absolutely not. That, that's not. That's not how it works at all. He says, look out for these people. Look out for them. And so in our day, um, even a, a thing like talking about um, circumcision or, or, or things like that kind of sounds weird to us, but, but you have to understand what's happening in the text here. In the Old Testament, God made a promise with his people. He, he, he said, I, I'm, I'm going to use you, and out of you, I'm going to bless the whole world, and, and I'm going to save you, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. That's what he said to the nation of Israel. And, and as a sign of that covenant, I, I want you to be circumcised. Okay, so, so that's why he's using that language here. So if when you come across that in the Bible and you're like, why are they talking about that there? That's weird. 
It's because in the Old Testament, that was the sign of the Old Covenant. Now, we're in the New Covenant, which Jesus entered into and ushered us into, and the new sign of the covenant is now baptism, not circumcision. Again, but they thought that doing that thing made them holy and righteous. But if you remember in Romans, the the Apostle Paul has already addressed this. He he says, hey guys, you remember Abraham? Now, it says that it, or that, that righteousness was accredited to Abraham because of faith. Now, was his righteousness accredited to him before he was circumcised or after? It was not after, but before, the Apostle Paul says in, in the book of Romans. So he's already addressed this. He's already talked about it. But here, these guys are still bringing it up, still bringing it up, saying, look how great we are. God must love us so much because of all the great stuff that we do. Now, in our day, we're, we're probably not debating circumcision in, in the back hallways of the church. If you are, stop it. We're probably not talking about following all of the Old Testament law. That's not us. But in our day, we've just implanted or transported in all of our customs. Now, depending on um, kind of where you come from or what religious tradition you grew up in, you might believe that you are way more justified, way more holy because you speak in tongues. Or, depending on your religious tradition, you think you're more holy because you don't speak in tongues. I mean, it just depends on where you come from. Did you grow up in a Pentecostal tradition, right? Some of them would push forward justification through speaking in tongues. But if you grew up in the Baptist tradition, it's like, oh, they're crazy. We're justified because we don't speak in tongues. Again, depending on tradition, oh, we're justified because we do not consume alcohol. But but then some other traditions, especially a lot of the newer traditions, says, oh, look at how free we are with our freedoms in Christ, and we're justified through consuming alcohol. Or look at us, we don't have any tattoos, and we would never mar our flesh or pierce our ears, and that makes us justified before the Lord. And then this new generation comes up and says, look how justified before the Lord we are. Look at all the tattoos and earrings and cool stuff we have. Or look at our band. I mean, have you heard our band? I mean, we have guitars and drums and all kind of stuff. We're justified before God because we play rock and roll music, while the other side is saying, oh no, we're justified before God because we use hymns only and one piano and an organ and that's it. So what makes you justified? What, what work or what act can you do that makes God love you more or makes him love you less? Again, that's what the Judaizers were promoting. Look at us and look at all the stuff we do and look how holy and righteous and religious we are. Don't you, don't you want to be just like us? Don't, don't you want to fit in um, to, to the cool crowd and, and, and be with us? So I want to ask you, what legalisms do you import into Orthodox Christian faith? What, what legalisms are you importing? Every single person in this room ha- has a heart condition to where you will see someone And you'll think to yourself, huh, I'm way more holy than that guy. He's not even carrying an ESV Bible. Or I'm way more holy than that guy, I read King James only. That's right. Or I'm way more holy than that guy, I mean, he smokes cigarettes. Huh. I'm way more holy than that guy because I'm way more holy than her because I'm way more holy than them because we all do it. And, and the Apostle Paul here follows up this, <laughs> this scathing rebuke with, for we are the circumcision. What does he mean there? We are the circumcision. 
he means we're the ones who have a covenant with God. Christians now have the, the covenant with God. We worship by the Spirit of God and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh, meaning no confidence in what we do. There's no work that I can do. There's no thing that I can accomplish. It doesn't matter how far away from alcohol I stay, or it doesn't matter how many tattoos I get or don't get. It doesn't matter how much tongue speaker I don't speak in tongues at all. Or none of that, none of those religious works justify me any more or any less. Now, let's define justification, okay? It's really, really important that we get the heart of what the Apostle Paul is saying. I want to define justification for us. Here's the definition. We say justification, we mean right standing with God, okay? Right standing with God, meaning you and God are okay. You're a sinner by nature and by choice, which makes you not okay with God, because he's holy and righteous, but being justified means you and God are okay. You're good. He makes you right with him. Now, how does that happen? It happens by a decree of God. What does he decree? He decrees that all of your sins are forgiven and that the righteousness that Christ had is yours. That's justification. Right standing with God by decree of God. What does he decree? Your sin is forgiven and all of the righteousness that Jesus had that he earned in the life that he lived is given to you. It's both. It's both. It's both. Why? Because if he just declares you're free from sin, that just wipes your slate clean. And now you have to live the whole rest of your life without sinning. Anybody got that figured out yet? Yeah, me either. So not only does he declare all of your sins forgiven, past, present, and future, you're you're forgiven of sin. Not only that, when I look at you, I'm going to look at you with the same heart, with the same eyes, with the same emotion and intent that I feel for my son. Because I'm gonna gonna impute, oh, there's, there's the... You know, seminary word for you. I'm gonna impute that righteousness. I'm gonna give you all of the good stuff that Jesus had. It's yours. It, it's yours. It's given to you. That's justification. Decreed by God, declared free from sin, and all of Jesus' righteousness given to you. So again, that's all a work of God. God decrees it. Jesus earns it. The Holy Spirit applies it. It's, it's all a work of God. And these guys are saying, no, 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 no. We follow all the dietary laws. No, no, no. We're, we're circumcised, showing the covenant in the Old Testament. No, no, no. We do all this stuff. Just like our hearts go, no, 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 no. I, I mean, I, I read the Bible and, and I pray all the time and I go to church and I even tithe. And I mean, I volunteers in the kids ministry, right? I'm justified. I'm justified. He says, no, no, no. We put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. So, number two, number two in our outline. Do not follow the spiritual leadership of people who have a high estimation of their works and a low estimation of the holiness of God. Do not follow spiritual leaders who have a high estimation of our works, a high estimation. You're pretty much a good person. You know, you're a beautiful snowflake created by God, and so just be you. You know, just, just try really hard because doing the right thing makes God love you, right? Doing the right thing makes God love you. That's having a high estimation of our works, of stuff that we do. Don't follow spiritual leaders who have a high estimation of our works 
and a low estimation of God's holiness. Those two things go hand in hand. The moment you start to have a high estimation that I can work so that God will love me, I can do all the right things, I can stop drinking and stop smoking and stop cussing and stop doing this and stop doing this and start doing all these righteous and holy things and then God will love me. The problem is you're having a high estimation of what you can do, which means you have a low estimation of the holiness of God. Again, what does the, what does the word say about our works? That before God, they're filthy rags. Okay? So, so, so what the Apostle Paul here is saying, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for manipulators of the flesh, okay? Look out for those guys. Don't follow spiritual leaders who have high estimation of our works and low estimation of the holiness of God. Now, he is going to draw a line in the sand and say, you Judaizers, you think you're so holy and righteous? Here's the line in the sand. Here's what I've accomplished. Compare your works to mine. Let's see who wins, okay? So what he's going to do is he is going to list his accomplishments as Saul of Tarsus. As you guys remember, when, when the Apostle Paul gets saved, God changes his name, changes his name from Saul to Paul. So, so he's going to list all of his accomplishments as Saul of Tarsus and say, you guys think you measure up? You think you're doing something? You, th you think your religion can save you? If religion can save anybody, the, Apostle, the, the, the Saul of Tarsus would have been saved, Okay. So he's going he's gonna to list out his pedigree. He's going to give you seven, okay, seven marks of his religious awesomeness. Okay? He, he's going to roll through these in verses um, four through nine. Okay? So here is his seven points of awesome that the Saul of Tarsus was. Okay? L listen to these in, in verses four through nine. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks that he has Reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, okay? He, he has challenged them to an arm wrestling contest and he's gonna win, okay? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, to the law of Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Listen to this, and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through, what's that word? Faith. In Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Okay, let's just roll back through these. Circumcised on the eighth day. This was according to Jewish custom. This means that he is an insider, insider in the cool club. He, he, he obeyed the law even when he wasn't able to obey the law because he was a tiny little infant. His parents were Jewish people and, and he followed the right rule. The rule was this is the day this thing's gotta happen. In addition of the people of Israel, the people of Israel, you, you, know, you guys know the people of Israel, God's chosen people, the, the blood that was coursing through the Apostle Paul's veins was the blood of God's chosen people. I have followed the rules even from a baby and, and I am of the people of God's chosen people. You guys aren't God's chosen people, I'm God's chosen people. That's what Saul of Tarsus would say. 
of the tribe of Benjamin. You guys know the tribe of Benjamin. They get sent out into exile, all the people, and then they come back from exile into Jerusalem. And who establishes the temple system? Well, the tribe of Judah. And who's right alongside of them? The tribe of Benjamin, right? Just establishing the, the temple system and, and, and God, setting up God's kingdom here on earth. Who was leading in that? The tribe of Benjamin, right? What about King Saul? What tribe did he come from? The tribe of Benjamin. And who has his namesake? Saul of Tarsus, huh? Right, he, he's stacking up his, his religious pedigree here. Here's what he continues to say. So, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Not only did the apostle Paul speak Aramaic and Greek, but he also spoke Hebrew. He read the Old Testament scriptures in Hebrew, and when he prayed, he prayed in Hebrew showing how religious and fancy he really was. As to the law of Pharisee, he, he committed himself to hundreds and hundreds of rules about the rules, right? This wasn't even just the rules that are in the Old Testament. The, the Pharisees had rules about the rules, okay? So they would say, okay, do not do this, and they would say, okay, in order to not do that, what the Old Testament is telling us not to do, we're gonna have six rules that we'll keep so that we don't do this rule, right? It's, that that's the Pharisees, and he committed himself to that, showing his religious awesomeness. As the law of Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, he was so die hard about the Israel's um, religious system, he was literally willing to kill people for it. He would hunt you down and kill you. A persecutor of the church, listen to this last one, okay? He, he calls himself blameless. Wow. Blameless, as to zeal, a persecutor of church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, listen, he doesn't say sinless, okay? As to righteousness under the law, blameless, meaning nobody could, could bring an accusation against him to say, the Apostle Paul, we, you know, we, we saw you kind of walking in pride a little bit, or the Apostle Paul, we, you know, at, at, at the temple thing the other night, everybody was having a good time. We think you might have had one too many glasses of wine or nobody had anything to, to bring against him. As to the law, blameless, okay? So this was a seven-fold stacking up of all of his religious accomplishments. And at this point, he just beat the pants off the Judaizers and obliterated all of us pagan-born Gentiles, Okay, this is why this message is so important for me to preach today. I, I am so tempted to believe that God loves me more because I preach for him, because I'm a pastor, because I'm in the ministry. I am so tempted to believe that. My, my, my heart often wants to go, God looks down on me and goes, Kirk, you are, you are awesome. I am, I'm, I'm lucky to have you on my team, you know, thank you. Thanks for choosing me. Thanks for doing all that you do. You're so great and smart. I mean, man, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm lucky. I'm so tempted to believe that. And, and the, the apostle Paul here just beat my pants off. I mean, he's way better than me. He's way smarter than me. He's, he outdoes me. He outdoes you. So, what he says next in verse seven becomes all the more astonishing. So he has stacked up, stacked up, stacked. Look, I, I accomplished all this. I did all this. 
Look back at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The, the apostle Paul, or, or before he was saved, Saul of Tarsus, had accomplished all this stuff. And then on the road to Damascus, something happened to him. Something happened to him. And whatever it was that happened to him there, he, he gets blinded. Three days later, the scales gets taken off his eyes. And something happened to him to, to say, all of that stuff, that's a lot of stuff. You, I, I want you to see, like, for, for a guy in this day and this time to, to have accomplished all of that, he had a bright future. He had a bright future. He, he would have made a lot of money. He, he would have been very powerful. He, he could have done anything that he wanted to do with this type of pedigree. But he says, all that stuff I accomplished, I counted as loss. Something happened to him on that road to Damascus that made him look at all that stuff that he had accomplished and say, it's worthless. I count it all as loss. Paul stopped putting his hope in his religious obedience because there was no hope in it to be found. And then he follows it with this, I count everything as loss. This is accounting terms, okay? accounting. So, so he said, okay, let's stack up one, two, three, four, five, six, seven equals zero. <laughs> seven equals zero in Paul's math. That sounds like my math, okay? Him, seven equals zero. I, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Listen, this word knowing is not mere um, like cognitive recognition. He's not just saying mentally, I know, just to know Christ is there. That's not what he's saying. Look back at, at seven and eight. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ what he says next, he says here and here only. Nowhere else in his writing. For the worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This knowing or this being found in him is a deeply intimate relationship that the Apostle Paul has with Jesus. This isn't just cognitive recognition. It's just not mental acknowledgement. But when he says, all of that stuff that I gained, all of my religious accomplishments, all that stuff I've stacked up is worthless. It's meaningless compared to a deep, abiding, intimate relationship with Jesus himself. To have him, to know him, to speak to him, to pray to him, to sing to him, to, to have him communicate with me through his Holy Spirit. That, that is, is of surpassing worth. There, there's nothing compared to that. Out of my whole life, out of everything I've gained, nothing even comes close to it. The Apostle Paul's view of the world is dull, dim, bland, and empty compared to Jesus and their relationship together. The Apostle Paul is enamored with Jesus and nothing, nothing can woo him away from his Savior. Some of you came in here this morning and you're being wooed away 
You're being wooed away from Jesus. The, the message here is that Jesus is of surpassing worth and value to everything else in your life. But, but, but many of us came in here today and there's something, there's something calling, there's something wooing. For some of us, it's sex. For some of us, it's alcohol. For some of us, it's pornography. For some of us, it's pride. For, for some of us, it's success. For some of us, it's marriage. Others of us, it's having children. I mean, it, it, there's so many things in the world that is simply trying to woo us. Come on, come on, this is, this is a value. This is of worth. Come on, come on, come on. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, no, no. That's not, that's not worth it. That's not worth it. So why? Here's a great question. Why does he find so much value in Jesus? Okay? You, you want to know how the, the, the church would have reacted when he said, I count everything as rubbish? You, you want to know how they would have reacted? They, they would have been gobsmacked. Okay, they, they would have been shocked that the Apostle Paul used this word. This is the Greek word, skubala. Okay? That, that, it, it means dung, and, and that's a nice way to say it. This was a profane expletive in that day and time. And he just compared all of his accomplishments, he just compared all of his religious works, he compared it to trash, to rubbish, to dung, to filth compared to the value of Christ. The question is, why? Why, Apostle Paul? I mean, I, I really like being successful. I, I, I really like these things. Why are they not of greater value than Christ? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The thing, this is why Christ is of so great value, okay? The Apostle Paul had done it all, and deep in his soul, he still was not satisfied. <laughs> he had done it all. He had been there. He had done it. He had said it. He had reached the top pinnacle of the religious man-made mountain. He had stood on top of the mountain and beat his chest and screamed to the top of his lungs. He had done it all and still felt empty on the inside. And many of you, maybe you didn't try to climb to the top of the religious mountain, but you've been down to the bottom of every bottle, been to the end of, <laughs> of every smoke. You, you, you've snorted it, you've drank it, you've smoked it, you, you've slept with it, you, you've done it and tried it all and still felt empty. But maybe some of you guys are the religious guy. Maybe you have, maybe you are here today and you've tried every religious thing you can think to do. You, you've read about it, you've prayed, you've meditated, you've done it all and you still feel empty on the inside. He just said, not having a righteousness of my own. He realized that nothing was going to satisfy him apart from Christ and that's why Christ is of surpassing value. Because he, he himself, Jesus, is the fountain that we can drink from, drink from, drink from, and be filled and satisfied. That's why he is of surpassing worth and of surpassing value. Third, justification through faith alone and the relationship with Jesus that it produces is the true treasure and the only thing that will fulfill you. 
Justification is found in Christ alone, faith in him alone. And the relationship with God that that faith produces is the only thing that fulfills you. It's the only thing that satisfies. It, it is the cure to the human soul. Verses 10 through 11. I should say, finally, or in closing, which you know means nothing. Verses 10 through 11. That I may know him. There it is again. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, in verse 11, when he says that I may attain the resurrection from the dead, the Apostle Paul here is not doubting his salvation. He's just saying, or he's not doubting that when Jesus returns, if, if he's gonna be called up or not. Um, he, he's just saying, I'm not exactly sure which way I'm gonna die, but w- in whatever way I attain the resurrection. So he, here is what he, he is saying, that I may know him and the power, the power of his resurrection. In, in your mind's eye, if you could just travel back with me 2,000 years ago, and, and they've taken Jesus, and, and he's been murdered, he's been mutilated, and, and his body lay in the tomb. There is no breath in his lungs. His heart has ceased beating the, the blood from his wounds has stopped flowing. His eyes have gone hollow and his body lay still wrapped in linen and spices. And then in an instant, power from on high surges across the body of Jesus and that resurrection power fills Christ's body and his his heart begins to beat and his lungs again fill with breath and, and blood begins to course through his veins and miraculously he passes through those old grave clothes and he stands in his resurrected, beautiful, perfected, powerful body. That power is the power that the Apostle Paul wants to know that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. This is exactly what happens to you and me when we're saved. Ephesians uh, chapter two, verse five, we were dead in our trespasses, but were made alive together with Christ. So when we're saved, what happens is, We're the ones laying. Our soul is there laying on that cold slab, not breathing, not moving. And the Holy Spirit comes in and does something miraculous. What is that thing that he does? We experience the power of that resurrection. And not only does the Apostle Paul want to experience that, but he wants to experience the sufferings of Christ. The sufferings, not just the power. The Apostle Paul isn't in this relationship with Jesus just for the get out of hell free card. Not only does he want the resurrection power, he wants to know all of Christ fully, deeply, which means knowing his sufferings and to be like him in his death. Now, this blows out of the water all of that health, wealth, and prosperity preaching that goes, in, in, goes on in the church so often today. This is seeking to suffer with Christ, to be like him in death. 
What does he mean? Certainly Paul is not suggesting that our suffering and death can save anyone's eternal soul. That's, that's not what the Apostle Paul is suggesting. But just as Christ's suffering and death was the ultimate gift and blessing to others, our suffering and death for others can be a gift and blessing. You guys get that? I, I want to I suffer with Jesus. I want to be like him in his death. What does he mean? He means that Jesus' suffering was a benefit to other people, so we suffer to be a benefit to other people, that, that we serve other people with our lives even to the point of death, that we kill ourselves. It's, it's a term that we use, right? Man, I'm just killing myself over here. We kill ourselves to serve other people. We pour out our lives in service to, to those around us. This starts in the home. As, as the, the, the husband pours out his life, even to the point of death, to serve and love his wife, that the husband, the leader of the home, pours out his life, even to the point of death, to serve and love his children, that the wife, in service to her husband, she pours out her life in, in service to her husband and to her children. What is she doing then? What is he doing then? At that moment, they're suffering with Jesus and becoming like him, knowing him more and more because the more you become like him, the more you know him. You see, Jesus became like us so we could become like him. So what happens, what he's calling us to, what he's saying is, I wanna suffer with Jesus. How does he suffer with Jesus? Well, he suffers with Jesus by suffering even to the point of death for other people. Now, Here's what's amazing, and please stay with me. Here's what's amazing. He said, I wanna, I wanna know his sufferings, I wanna be like him in his death. Now, he began by saying, I wanna know the power of his resurrection. Now, the apostle Paul has two resurrections here in mind. Again, stay with me. Not only the resurrection from spiritual death to spiritual life, so not only the resurrection of salvation, the, the resurrection the Apostle Paul here has in mind in this text is a continual resurrection, is a life of resurrecting. What do I mean? I mean that the Apostle Paul has in mind that he wants us to suffer with Christ even to the point of death by pouring out our life for other people and when we feel like we're killing ourselves to serve other people, we experience a resurrection, afresh, anew. We wake up in the morning and experience a, a resurrection and go out and do it all over again and pour out our whole life in serving other people and loving other people, even if it kills us. And we wake up in the morning and we say, Jesus, I need a resurrection today. I need you to resurrect me from the dead today, Jesus, because I poured out my whole life in serving other people, and he sends the Holy Spirit to send you that resurrection and give you the power that you need to then go out and serve people all the more. So, number four and lastly, give your life away to serve other people to the point where it kills you, and then pray for resurrection power and do it all over again so that you may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible you might attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me pray for us. Father, what a beautiful text you've given us. Thank you for over the hundreds and hundreds of years preserving this text so that we could read it, so that we could know it. Father, I pray 
for the power of your Holy Spirit to flood this room today, to sweep over the minds and the hearts of people. God, I pray that what would happen today is we all, we all, including myself, would leave here today with our affections for Christ soaring to heights never reached before. That the people in this room would leave here today saying, Jesus is my all. He is of surpassing worth and value. That everything else is rubbish compared to knowing you. That, that, that's my hope today. I hope that we are wrecked today. I hope our hearts are wrecked today. Um, I, I want our affections uh, to be stirred up for Christ today. Um, the only way that can happen is um, if, if you intervene and do something today. My, my sermon can't do it. The, the band can't do it. Um, but, but you are powerful enough to breathe the power of resurrection here today. Father, I pray for those who are struggling with sin today. They've come feeling incredibly defeated by sin. They've come feeling like their life is broken and they're to the point of death. I pray they would experience a resurrection today. I pray that dead souls would resurrect today. That people who don't know you that, that, Father, if there be someone in the room today who, who doesn't know you, who, who, who doesn't know you like the Apostle Paul knows you here in this text, that if they're not believers, that today they would become and respond to you in faith and they will be resurrected. I pray for the other people in the room who are believers um, but maybe sitting on the sidelines or, or maybe they just feel empty and broken and hopeless and don't know where to go or don't know what to do and they, they feel to the point of death. Father, I pray for supernatural resurrection today in this room. 